What is up, guys? Welcome back to the show. Happy having day, everybody. Um, I actually tried really hard to get a transaction into block 630,000, and I got 630,001. Uh, the block came too quick. I was trying to broadcast it, and it was like immediate. If anybody was there watching it, we had the Crypto Economy crew together um, uh, all on Zoom, and it was like, I think it was like a minute, about a minute long block. Um, but uh, happy having. That's uh, an amazing uh, milestone. Pretty epic to have been here for the third one now um pretty crazy uh particularly in our current environment that it is the only money in the world the independent money that is actually tightening its monetary policy in the face of the most historic global economic uh, monetary expansion that we have literally ever seen so if you haven't started your Bitcoin savings plan, um, now is the time to do it. A uh, shout out to swanbitcoin.com slash guy, by the way, um, for supporting this podcast, the Audible of Bitcoin. And, uh, but we are talking about monetary policy. We are talking about Bitcoin. We are talking about obsoleting all other money because we have Parker Lewis on the show today. Uh, had an awesome conversation with him at the end of the last uh, end of last week, and he know he needs no introduction whatsoever. So without further ado, we're just going to jump right in. This is our chat with Parker Lewis from Unchained Capital. Welcome back to the show. Uh, today we have Parker Lewis on the podcast, um, and uh, just to say, man, I'm really excited to have you on. I've been kind of thinking about doing this in the back of my mind for. I don't know, damn near a year uh, since uh, Bitblock boom, probably last year. Um, and uh, uh, if for anybody who listens to the show, like, you know, who Parker Lewis is, um, potentially, actually, as far as download count, you may be the most popular author on the podcast. Um, and uh, he's uh, head of business development at Unchained Capital. And of course, authors the Gradually Then Suddenly series, which is 14 pieces now. Is that? Is that how long that is now? 14 plus, uh, you know, Ender's Game isn't really part of the series, but uh, it's, okay. it's listed on the website. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, and they continually uh, continually get better, in my opinion. So uh, welcome to the show, man. It's good to have you on. Hey, I, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me on, you know, particularly from my end. I appreciate everything that you do, not just in uh, recording and, and then providing great uh, context to my writing, uh, but but it does mean a lot to me that that you uh, take the time to, to to go through each gradually then suddenly, um, and you know I, I think you know people who've come to our blog, you know, we have the the links to the the Crypt Economy podcast um, for each of those, but uh, on on our end, kind of collectively, but then also me personally, um, I'm hugely hugely appreciative of of the work that you do in general, but then also spreading the good word of of. Uh, Get, getting my thoughts on, on air. Awesome, man. Awesome. That's, that's great. Uh, I, I try to do whatever part I can play in this. <laughs> no, I'm pretty sure that uh, when people, and this is probably maybe a little bit too much information, but my, uh, my, brother, my brother told me that he listens to uh, Guy Swan's uh, audio recordings of my articles in the shower. <laughs> 
<laughs> I don't know if I don't know if I'm happy about that or what. <laughs> yeah, I told you probably a little bit too much information, but uh, but yeah, I'll take it. I'll take it. It's good. It's good. No, I th I think what you do is one of the most unique things out there. I think that it's something that needs to needs to be there, um, and that you know, you know, I think there's if I look at you know the NakamotoInstitute.com, they're kind of collecting a bunch of of different writings. But then, but then you actually bring those to life um, and create it, create an entirely new medium um, that that needs to exist. But that's also uh, not only cons you know consumable for people in different ways, but then also you provide such great context um, and, and your own commentary around them. So, uh, Dude, awesome. that's, I'm 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 really flattered. Thank you. Um, uh, let's uh, just start this off though with um, I know you've talked about it. Like I've listened to you in a number of other podcasts, um, but just you know, the quick version of uh, kind of what you were doing when Bitcoin found you and then what you're now doing with Unchained Capital. So, and I don't really know exactly when Bitcoin found me. I, I definitely know who was my patient zero, which is one of my colleagues now and one of my best friends going back since we were three years old before we can even remember. But uh, Will Cole initially told me about Bitcoin. I think it was probably 2014-ish time frame, and I was working at a hedge fund at the time. I really, you know, I think I was always somebody that was not dismissive of Bitcoin, but it didn't immediately click for me. Uh, and it, it took me a few, probably a few good years of looking at it, not constantly, obviously, but, but paying attention and really scratching my head as to, to you know, what it was and, and really you know, in that time, I, I hadn't spent the time to understand monetary economics. Um, you have an economics degree from university, but through that still never really, as I think most people naturally, never re really question what is money. Um, and as I went through and started to, to think through monetary economics, I was at the time doing a, a bunch of macro research at the hedge fund that I was working with on quantitative easing. And as I was going through that process, and really it was an independent process of trying to understand Bitcoin, it was really kind of those, those two, verge, two roads converging to one for me. Um, you know, both thinking about what happened in 2008, what's expected to happen in the future, what, does, you know, what is the root of QE, what, it, what, what does it actually do? Um, and then, and then I, as I was trying to understand Bitcoin, not actually on the, not completely on the technical level, but also on the economic level, I really came to the conclusion that Bitcoin exists for a number of reasons and it will be transformational, you know, for more reasons than just this. But if I was to simplify, it, it really is the solution to QE or it's the opt-out path to QE. And as soon as that started to really click, that's when I made a decision, it would have been in 2017, to, to leave what I was doing and then um, figure out how I could actually plug into the Bitcoin world more on a full-time basis. And ultimately met, after I'd moved back to Austin in 2018, met uh, Joe and Drew, the two co-founders at, at Unchained, uh, had a you know, dialogue with them for quite a while, probably six months, wasn't really looking to, to jump in. But then as we continued to collaborate on ideas, they asked me to come on board and help uh, build the, the future of Unchained. So, um, you know, at Unchained, we're, we're a Bitcoin native financial services company. Really, uh, Unchained's been around for two, three years. 
Um, it started out as, as a lending business and we were providing liquidity for long-term Bitcoin holders that uh, really wanted to preserve their Bitcoin for the long term, but uh, needed dollar liquidity in the interim. And, and then from there, that, that spawned the, the Vaults product, which is really the core nucleus of our platform today. And so we, we you know, are helping to commercialize multi-sig, help individuals that are self-custodying do that in more secure ways. And then where we build from here, it's, it's kind of looking at the, the entire Bitcoin ecosystem and figuring out how we can help solve the most acute needs in our eyes. Nice. Nice. Um, uh, I've actually been using only, uh, uh, you may know this, I'm not sure, but um, uh, it was just like two weeks ago that I finally set up my vault with Phil. And, uh, uh, but the, the multi-sig and like caravan and stuff is really awesome. And I'm, I'm really happy to start playing with that more. That's where I'm, that's where I'm dumping my, uh, I'm doing my auto withdrawal from Swan Bitcoin is I'm, I'm dumping all that into my unchained vault. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. And that's really, you know, when we look at the landscape, you know, myself personally, I think, you know, the great thing about, and I'm, and I'm sure kind of folks all over the place, whether it's Swan River, uh, Square, whoever's contributing, you know, everyone has, you know, kind of a myriad of ideas of how they can plug in and, to, and improve. You know, one of the things that I look at, especially as we approach the happening and the next adoption wave, really, you know, trying to create those solutions in terms of how we store Bitcoin for the long term where, um, you know, not that people can't sleep at night, but where realistically that, that concern about is my Bitcoin safe, you know, is, you know, is it potentially compromisable, really leave you multi-sig and particularly collaborative custody, you know, whether someone's, you know, working with us or, or not, that, that the future of multi-sig is the way that, you know, for people that are um, storing their, the, the vast majority of their wealth, uh, that it should be in some multi-sig arrangement. So um, there's, you know, any number of ways that, that we're working to advance that both within our private application and external to it. But, but our goal is to, to help be, be a, a small part about, of that making multi-sig ubiquitous for people because we do see that as the logical progression as people move from you know those that are already self-custodying to self-custodying in a more robust way but then ultimately our goal would be to make you know a an on you know going from an on-ramp directly to uh, multi-sig and collaborative custody where where there is no separation between you know what the on-ramps that exist today in terms of a coin base uh, but that people can act, that we make it easy enough where people are comfortable going from zero straight to, to multi-sig cold storage. Nice. Yeah, I, I definitely, multi-sig is one of those things that's just a beautifully simple thing, um, but it's just kind of, it's one of those things that Bitcoin can provide that no other system can. Like and the level of additional security and kind of uh, uh, fallback in the case of you know certain events that that can actually provide. Like I totally agree. I think multi-sig is going to be absolutely critical moving forward. And um, uh, collaborative custody and, and like the idea that like you guys um, actually provide uh, loans. Like there's a number of uh, companies actually that do the whole loan like collateralized Bitcoin collateralized loan thing now. But I don't think anybody else still to this day does it with where you still hold one of your keys so you can actually see and check your Bitcoin, except for you guys, right? Is that, is that right? I don't think anybody else has. 
No, I, I, I do think that's right. I, you know, I don't, I'm not, at least I'm not aware of, of anyone yeah. else that does it. And, but that is one of the things that, that you get when you focus on Bitcoin. Um, when you, you know, m multiple other cryptocurrencies don't, you know, have native multi-sig. Uh, and so, you know, partly from a technology perspective that multi-sig is native to Bitcoin, but that, you know, when, when as a company, you're exclusively, exclusively focused to serving the, you know, and, and operating around Bitcoin and serving Bitcoin clients that are holding Bitcoin for the long term, you naturally tend to focus on developing your product in different ways than you otherwise might. Yeah. And, you know, in the context of our loans, allowing our clients to, to store one of three keys, somebody could look at that and say, well, what, you know, they, they don't have control of the Bitcoin, so what, what is the real benefit to that? But ultimately, look, we look at it from a security standpoint of uh, diversifying key management. The Bitcoin is still our clients while it's held uh, as collateral backing alone. And, you know, with, with every single one of our loans, there's dedicated multi-sig addresses um, and collaterals never rehypothecated. But by holding that one key, um, you know, not only is key management further diversified, but that you can actually verify that that Bitcoin is unique to you, that it's not, um, you know, just a, an address that, that, that shows an amount of Bitcoin um, that's part of, a, of an omnibus system. So, um, you know, we try to do everything to not only engineer around edge cases, but to operate with maximum transparency to ultimately uh, deliver the greatest security outcomes. But, but yeah, that is one benefit to, to our platform. Um, and and it, is, it is an output of being so exclusively focused on Bitcoin. Nice. You know, you, you mentioned something just a minute ago about like your economics degree and, um, and then kind of finding your way to Bitcoin. Uh, just out of curiosity, how big of a shift was that for you? Like, like, did you like straight up go down the Austrian economics rabbit hole uh, there, like in discovering Bitcoin? Like, what, what do you think the biggest fundamental difference between what you learned in school versus what you learned uh, in your own path of discovery? It was definitely, it required like rewiring the brain, right? <laughs> and so yeah. I think that there were so many fundamental assumptions that, you know, whether it was in university or before or just generally in the mainstream of, of what, what is assumed as the way things are being right, that it requires, you know, once you cross over, it becomes so obvious. But before that, it, it's almost as if, you're you're staring at a problem, and things just don't register because, you know, it, it's not that it's not necessarily that. I mean, you certainly learn something, but it but it's existed for so long that things that don't make sense because they just are the norm um, are difficult to think outside of. And so, the benefit that I really had, and I've, and I've um, on a number of occasions I've told the story, but. Um, I had the benefit kind of serendipitously of while I was working at Heyman Capital in Dallas, going to do diligence on a gold company based in Canada. And it was through that, you know, at the time, um, I think that, so the company is gold money and. 
Okay. At the time, it was yeah, it was called it was called Bitgold, and their website had some references to blockchain on it. So I actually reached out to my friend Will Cole. I mean, this was before I had taken the deep dive down in, to to learn about Bitcoin, but you know was aware of it. You know was aware of something that was there. So I had the you know the reference to to even ping Will, but you know, asked him, hey, you know, does this have anything to do with Bitcoin? And he told me after he looked at it, he's like, I don't think so. But, but, you know, given how much it has to do with gold, I've got somebody who you should talk to. And that, that person ended up being safety in a moose. And so was, it was able to correspond with him over email. And then ultimately when I went to go do diligence on the company up in Canada, he happened to be in the area. And so we were able to connect, you know, before I got to Bitcoin, he really helped me, you know, just understand, I'd say the baseline, you know, even if not Austrian economics, just monetary economics, thinking about money, mm-hmm. what, what actually gives it value. And then also in, in combination to uh, conversations with SAFE, the, the, the two co-founders at Gold Money are, and two guys that I have a lot of respect for, Roy Svog and, and Josh Crum. I don't necessarily agree with Roy on all of his views about gold or Bitcoin, but not, you know, nonetheless, learned a lot from him about gold and you know kind of the, the dynamics around debt in the world he he recommended a book to me called a world in debt uh, and and i read that and then through conversations with safe it was really unlocking the mental blocks around what is money what what gives money value and then through that process while i was also doing research on the fed and quantitative easing that that's when um and and, and you know idea starting to click and then going and learning about Bitcoin that, you know, for me, it wasn't, I didn't have to go all the way down the, the Austrian economics rabbit. Um, and it was really the idea that clicked for me. And the thing that I think is most important and most fundamental is the ideas around the pricing mechanism. Yeah. Um, yeah. What it actually is, how profound it is, how critical it is to the way that everything operates. And so realistically, you know, if I, w- if I was to summarize it, uh, you know, in school, I learned a, l- a lot of theory that, that I would consider mainstream. And if it, you know, again, it, it's unfair to say that it was all thousand foot view theory. But once I got to the root ground level of just understanding price and money, then I didn't, ne- you know, I didn't need to know all the, the higher level ideas. That, yeah. that everything builds off of that and, and things just in terms of the, the way economics and the way the, the global economy should work, not that it works this way today because of the way our monetary system works, uh, all of that just starts to, to create clarity. So yeah. Um, yeah. I have you know, gone you know, fairly far down the Austrian, rap, you know, Austrian school rabbit hole too, but, but it it's really, it really all centers around that, that idea of the pricing mechanism. Yeah, it's amazing that this still, I've probably recommended it a hundred times on my show, um, but uh, that still was one of the most profound things for me is the the combination of the ideas in like I Pencil by Leonard Reed um, and then uh, the use of knowledge in society by Hayek on like what the pricing mechanism is and how like the whole concept of the pretense of knowledge that it is the market and the pricing system that informs us of everything that we would actually need to make decisions on that scale. Like, like, so it makes absolutely no sense to presuppose 
what what it means to have uh, for something to have value in the economy because it is only the economy and the pricing mechanism that can give us that <laughs> that uh, that judgment I guess you could say um, but those that whole God that one just blew my mind when I first was reading it like the the pricing system is such a fascinating concept um uh on that yeah you and i think that there's there's two things the pricing mechanism and the pretense of knowledge right yeah and he he kind of he talks about uh i don't know he specifically uses the term pretense of knowledge and the use of knowledge in society but but that is the core concept that if you were looking at say an austrian school of economics versus a mainstream or keynesian or monetarist that idea that the knowledge in the marketplace is generated from price that the greatest distribution system in the world of knowledge is price price emerges from you know, a common medium of exchange mm -hmm. and it essentially aggregates all of the knowledge of all disparate individuals in an economy that that don't have to know each other but can react to basically only the the amount of information that they need that the, the price mechanism filters everything else out and i think i don't know if it's the analogy for example that hayek uses but i think of it as you know, if you're building homes in the united states and it requires copper for telecommunications and there's an earthquake in chile that disrupts the the copper supply chains and copper has now intermittently become scarce, more scarce or, or costs more, that someone that's building homes in the United States doesn't have to have any knowledge that there was a, uh, that, th that there was a earthquake in Chile that caused the disruption of the supply chain. All they see is that the price of copper is now more expensive and they have to react to that. They either have to charge, home, they have to use less copper, but that ultimately it is that pricing mechanism that not only distributes, but really um, consolidates and, and simplifies the, the whole process of distributing knowledge. But then when you come back to the pretense of knowledge, and this is where I think the idea clicked for me that the whole idea of active management of the money supply is just insane, is that all, all the information is communicated through price and all you're doing when you you know, are you know, an outside force dictating or manipulating the pricing mechanism through the money supply is you're basically failing to understand that you don't have, like, that, that no group of individuals, 12 people around a table or 100 or 1,000 uh, could, could possibly do that effectively because they don't have the knowledge that the whole has in terms of what they're Yeah. And so... Um, once you once you recognize those those two concepts and and how profound they are, then you know looking at the legacy system becomes you know, much harder to to fathom how so many people look at it and say, oh yeah, that that makes sense. Let, let's keep doing that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and one one of the things that like makes makes both of those concepts even more profound in their difference between that and like some political committee making these decisions or trying to you know do the artificial equivalent of aggregating all of this information is that everyone is actually making skin in the game decisions like with boots on the ground in their individual situations so whereas like it's not just like somebody's subjective opinion that they would tweet about 
because we don't always say in public what we would actually do given the circumstances where we are paying the risks and we are paying our actual labor and our you know family is actually involved in it but the the market is actually able to aggregate all of that data and all of our real risk assessments and even though we may politically say one thing or we may virtue signal here or whatever like the truth of it is accounted for in the price because when the skin is in the game when we are paying the price and when it's our time going into those decisions we make very different decisions sometimes um and none of that is gotten in some political committee that's going to decide what the price is for everyone else even outside of the fact that they can't aggregate any of the information <laughs> Yeah, I, I agree. And it's also that it's not only that we, you know, that, that a small group of people can't, you know, very naturally can't know that information. It's also that, that we don't necessarily know yeah. that information, right? That, that our preferences change and that our changes in preferences, both individually and then kind of in aggregate, dictate the entire formation of the supply and demand structures in an economy. Mm-hmm. And so ultimately, what someone at a central bank is looking at is they're trying to assess based on and at an aggregate level what are preferences as communicated through price at some static period in time and then essentially dictating the supply of money which fundamentally changes those preferences by introducing money into the system and given how it is distributed, it's not, you know, it's like you're looking at a current, if you're looking at current prices, and again, the idea of price, it doesn't really exist because there's billions of prices. But what they're doing is trying to simplify that down into a snapshot. But then what, 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 what happens is by inserting money to different points, you're naturally upsetting that balance. And the fundamental economy, by the mere fact of doing that, and reallocating who holds the monetary capital in an economy, th- those preferences then definitionally change because the distribution of the, the holdership of the, the currency is now different. And it just mm-hmm. takes time for that to be reflected in a new price equilibrium, essentially. So, yeah. 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 That's a, yeah, it's, it's, it's really insane. It's such a fascinating concept to me. Um, uh, on, on your series, uh, was there anything in particular that got you writing this? Was there like a a certain thing that compelled you to sit down and writing one day or was it just, you know, you just wanted to explain it? Like, how did that really start? No, there there were definitely a few different influences. Yeah, a few of them were, or I'd say if there were three of top of mind, Marty Bent kept dripping out his daily newsletter, you know, see, seeing those come out and thinking about ideas that, that I had that oftentimes were things that I initially struggled with. Mm-hmm. Uh, wanting to, to you know, on my own side, to be able to distill those ideas, you know, one, just for, for me to have a better sense of them so that when I was articulating them verbally, I you know, put them down on paper and really work them through. Uh, but then second, you know, after SAFE released the, the Bitcoin standard, I bought a bunch of copies and I was using that to, you know, in, in a way leverage my own time where 
you know, rather than have to explain to somebody, you know, what SAFE explains so well, to be able to hand them a book and, you know, then be able to an answer questions from there. And so I viewed it as a way, okay, if I, if, if there are ideas that, that I want to, you know, distill for my own self so that I can explain them better and get them on paper, then I can actually leverage my own time by each, somebody, each time somebody has the same question because so many people have the same questions, then I can direct them to an article and I don't take the time to, um, to, to educate them. And so the, the, the combination of those, those elements, um, you know, really then said, you know, one day I just decided that, hey, today's going to be the day. Let's, let's start putting the ideas <laughs> down on paper. And, uh, and, then it, and then it evolved. I didn't really have an idea for how long I would do it. And I don't really know for how long I will continue to, um, you know, kind of act, once, once you tick off so many of these, you know, I don't always write about the subjects that are things that trip people up, but I, but I do oftentimes, um, you know, the further you go out, you know, the, 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 the more you require something to change for there to be some some form of instantaneous inspiration to to create a new subject so yeah but but i'm going to keep going for now and we'll see how we'll see how many we can get to hell yeah was uh in the whole the whole series was there one particular topic uh that you thought was just really important to hit um like it was you know more widely misunderstood than others hmm I think that there are probably, it's hard to say one, I'd say the most common are Bitcoin's not backed by nothing. Okay. Yeah. And then the, the volatility one really trips people up. It, yeah. I think that for people that have come to, you know, understand Bitcoin's fixed supply that seems obvious and it's like why don't you get this like so many people are going to adopt bitcoin it's not going to be volatile in the future but but people really struggle with uh, how can this be a currency if you know it change the, the value changes on a day-to-day -day basis mm -hmm. and then and then the third one may be bitcoin cannot be copied you know where again that one seems so obvious but people just struggle with it a ton which is the, the confusion or conflation that, you know, okay, even if I give you that Bitcoin has a fixed cap of 21 million, you can just create a bunch of copies of, you know, whether it's copying Bitcoin's code base or creating a new cryptocurrency and viewing that mm -hmm. as inflation. And so I wrote Bitcoin cannot be copied, but then I, the, the Bitcoin obsoletes all of their money. It was kind of an, an extension of Bitcoin cannot be copied. So yeah. It, you know, not that the others, the other ones aren't important, but that that those were the those were probably the three that I think consistently trip people up the most on. So, yeah, the ones that I think uh, uh, really made the most clarification for me, because um, a lot of these ideas are like 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 a one step more in depth of like. Uh, uh, something that like the longer you're in Bitcoin, the more you study, you find all of these ideas. But sometimes it's just so hard to like illustrate or like really find the right words to explain some of these ideas. And definitely Bitcoin cannot be copied. Um, uh, did a really good job of articulating 
uh, one of those things that's just that was just like kind of on the edge that I was I was kind of trying to explain, but it never really came out right. <laughs> and then also uh, uh, for me, Bitcoin is not too slow. Um, was trying to like I felt intuitively that the transaction problem and the payments problem was not really the problem that people made it out to be. But it's so hard. The, the concept of the scarcity in the monetary policy is a zero to one problem. And then that payments is just one to infinity. Like there's, there's a never an end to it. It's not as if we can just get a slightly bigger block size and it's like, oh, we're done. Like even if we go up to gigabytes or terabytes, like that's not a, like that, was, that is a forever problem that will have a thousand different solutions. That one, both of those really for me were ones where it was like, that just hit. And I was like, yes, that is the best way to kind of frame this mentally um, that uh, explains a point that I was trying to get to intuitively, but I couldn't, I was failing every time I tried to find the right words. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do think, you know, particularly on that one, and I, I use this, or, or I try to communicate this in some of my writing because it, it's not just in, in Bitcoin's not too slow, but that core idea that thinking about how game-changing or profound the idea is that Bitcoin achieved finite digital scarcity. Mm -hmm. Because you can go out and you can hear people say that there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin. But when you really think about the weight of what that means and whether or not it's true, that if you, and, and again, not everyone is going to have to understand at a technical and economic level why that is the case. But if, you know, I do think that I, I recognize that we are still very early and that some of those you know, fundamental questions need to be asked and answered for you know, a sufficient number of people to, to you know, really advance forward. Um, that once you have some grasp of how big of an achievement that is, then every other problem that needs to be solved in Bitcoin uh, falls by the wayside. That it's if we did this, if we achieved this level of finite scarcity and what that really means, do you think that we're not going to be able to solve payments? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, that you, know, you is you that really the one that's going to trip us up and it, yeah. <laughs> there's no other solution for it? Like, look what we just got accomplished. <laughs> so we figured out finite digital scarcity, but we can't commercialize it. You know, that's what we're <laughs> best at. So, uh, and then, you know, and I think that idea extends to, to a number of things. Whereas if you, again, if you can understand or have some framework to to recognize not just someone telling you that there's 21 million Bitcoin, but you know, some dynamic around the, the why, then, you know, whether, whatever the other subjective is like, okay, Bitcoin's too volatile. Well, go again, go back to that root level. Like, do you recognize the magnitude of finite digital scarcity combining the property, not only perfecting the, the property of scarcity and making it finite, but then marrying with that the ability to send it across a communication channel that you don't 
then have the imagination to understand why so many people would, would demand that. And in the future, when a billion people are using it to recognize that at that future state, there, there won't be a volatility. And it will be you know, perfectly, perfectly stable, not in the sense that its price will be fixed, but mm-hmm. that the changes in the value of that money when a billion people are using it will you know, be practically unnoticeable. Mm-hmm. Um, either day to day, week to week, month to month. So, so much of that, I think, kind of waking people up from the trance, like, no, like, appreciate how significant this thing is that is digital scarcity. Okay, let's take a quick break for our sponsor and then we'll jump back in. Is really a core to then uh, getting them to understand, you know, why a number of the other mental blocks or pitfalls that trip people up. Uh, will get solved in time. And that really also comes back to this idea of, maybe it's not an exact parallel, but the idea of pretense of knowledge, which is you, you have, you know, Bitcoin humbles a lot of people, mm-hmm. uh, or it should. If, if it hasn't, then um, you may not be thinking about it correctly. But that, you know, not only do I recognize my own limitations in whether it's understanding or what I'm focused on day to day, again, time is limited. That there's people all over the world solving all sorts of different problems in, in an entire, you know, in a way that is really sp- uh, spontaneous order. And that also it's not just people that are working on solving problems in Bitcoin today. It's that there's going to be so many more people that are not yet even contributing that have different skill sets or their minds work differently that as Bitcoin evolves and as adoption increases, as value increases, more resources will be devoted to solving all of these problems. And they'll, they'll essentially be solved as, as a function of value. As more um, capital is stored in Bitcoin, then more capital will form, be formed to commercialize. And, and that should be very natural to people. It, it's essentially the way that any technology works. Yeah, that's one of those things that I find, um, and and it usually kind of feels like a cop out, like from my perspective, when I don't have like a concrete answer for them. But like, like I'm like, don't don't you understand? Like, if we if we can maintain the most profound aspect, like the 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 highest value solution that Bitcoin is providing, is that we will have there will be so much mind share around expanding what you can do with it that these problems will get solved. And they're not even inherently difficult problems to solve. The, the second stage, third stage problems, they, they are the second and third stage specifically because they are less important. Um, and, but to say that like, oh, no, we'll just figure it out. You know, usually people are like, well, how do you know that? And, you know, it's, it's, it's hard for people to understand the, the power of those feedback loops and the kind of the nature of uh, organic development and adaptation of the entire ecosystem that that happens when you have a market uh, with incentives properly aligned. Um, I got a question here. So on that note, because you uh, brought up kind of the... Oh, wait, I'm losing you. Sorry. What were you saying? No, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you now. I was just going to round that out with the idea idea that you, you, you balance out the, we're just going to figure it out to, to at least giving them enough breadcrumbs to understand you know, why, there, why there's an ant trail um, mm-hmm. to that. So the idea of Bitcoin being not too slow, 
a lot of people's understanding of the existing system is flawed or they don't they think they understand it but they don't so mm -hmm. you know on bitcoin's not too slow or payments it's if you start to think about the bitcoin layer as a settlement layer like the, say the new york fed that you know when somebody goes to get a starbucks they're not actually magically teleporting money from their bank account to starbucks bank account <laughs> there's a credit card run balance checked and then you know some point later in the day there's a massive transaction that settles you know interbank transactions mm -hmm. and so start to think about well what what is bitcoin really or, or the bitcoin base chain or base layer what is it really and then and then you can also explain various different things that will already be working on again we don't know that lightning is going to be the the clear winner in how bitcoin kind of scales payments but we're already thinking about those ideas, but also recognize that the primary use case today is a savings mechanism. So it's kind of bridging those two gaps of, of helping somebody understand the, the logic behind why we will figure it out, help them understand more about the legacy system that, that is the, you know, forming how they're looking at Bitcoin and oftentimes making uh, false comparisons because of their own lack of knowledge. And, and, then, and then also providing those breadcrumbs to saying okay but here's here's a few different things to think about as it relates to you know scaling or volatility or whatever it may be to, to help bridge those gaps from from bridge those gaps from multiple gotcha yeah 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 um uh, and with that is there and maybe you've kind of already hit on this like with your uh, talk of volatility and like that sort of thing but do you think like, particularly like in reaching out outside of the Bitcoin community, I find there are a lot of people who really despise Bitcoin. Like, like not only do they just dismiss it, but some of them really kind of hate it. <laughs> um, do, do you think that there's like, like, what do you think in Bitcoin really encourages that in some segment of the mainstream exactly? I really think that it's human psychology. Yeah. Um, that I, I remember seeing a, a presentation while I was uh, working in capital markets, working at the hedge fund I was at in Dallas, and somebody showed me a presentation explaining the boom and bust cycles. And one one point on that was that you know kind of different stages of the cycle, and and one of them being People don't like to see their friends or neighbors get rich. Like they hate that, you know. <laughs> yeah. And so when the price of Bitcoin rises to twenty thousand, and you know, I think about it as purchasing power in dollar terms rather than price. But when people see that, they don't want it to be true. And so then they start to create explanations for why it's not. And rather than actually trying to understand it, they they become more hardened. They see it crash and it reinforces that they were right and then it and then it never dies and then it picks its head up and i think that's just part of you know a very natural cycle of you know missing quote missing a move not wanting to be wrong hardening a position and then at some point it be it just never goes away and then they're forced to um you know some some uh 
some stage of grief, which is like denial to acceptance, <laughs> to yeah. then, then actually spending the time to understand why their prior views may have been flawed or built on, you know, flawed assumptions. Gotcha. Yeah. In, in that, like, like kind of with that in mind, do you, uh, uh, how do you usually go about introducing Bitcoin to people like friends and family? Like, for instance, are you the thought of as the Bitcoin guy in your non-Twitter circles? Or is it just kind of like I leave it to uh, I keep my Bitcoin world and my personal world separate? Like, how do you how do you play that game? <laughs> I really don't go. I really don't go out of my way. Well, in certain certain circumstances, I do. but. Most of the time, I don't go out of my way to explain Bitcoin to people. I, you know, every everyone that I know knows what I'm doing, mm-hmm. and naturally has, you know, there's some percentage of those people that are interested, and then they'll ping me with questions if they see something, and then I'll send them articles. But um, I had a I had a realization that it really is unproductive to try to explain Bitcoin to somebody whose interest hasn't been piqued. Yeah. Right. That, that if you're trying to force Bitcoin onto someone that, that hasn't come to you to say, Hey, help me understand this, then it's really uh, beating a dead horse essentially. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what I do when people, and I'll tell you kind of one story of, I've got some friends that, you know, are more like that, uh, you know, people that people that should be paying attention that you know are are resistant to Bitcoin. Uh, but in general, when people come to me and they're interested, that you know, I'll send them a copy of the Bitcoin Standard, and then I'll tell them, "Hey, read this book." And then if you have questions, I'll I'll help answer them. And then if they have individual questions about, but you know, why is it too volatile? I'll send them my articles, and that is also one of the reasons you know why. Where, where I see value is that I just don't, I don't only leverage my own time of explaining to people, but then anybody who's, you know, familiar with the series as their friends have those questions rather than spend 30 minutes out of their day explaining to someone they can send the article. Yeah. And so, and then, and then that, that extends to getting people who are new to Bitcoin uh, set up with keys and helping them explain how that works. So I kind of, I take the approach that. You know, once someone is interested and comes to me, I give them resources to, to learn. And then once they've shown some level of, you know, commitment on their own side or investment of their own time, then I'm happy to, to spend as much time. But I, I really don't try to, you know, convince somebody of Bitcoin. I just kind of take the, you know, idea that, hey, here are some resources and you're going to figure it out one way or the other. And for a few of my friends now who are, you know, a few of my friends who work for hedge funds, um, that you know have failed to take the time to understand Bitcoin, and they're some of my closest friends. I uh, I just have started to send them each week when the Fed releases its uh, its balance sheet. I tell them exactly how many dollars were uh, created in the last week. So in the last seven days, the Fed created sixty five billion dollars, and there were about thirteen thousand Bitcoin. So I just keep them you know, every every Thursday after the the Fed releases the the Wednesday tally, then uh, then I just give the slow drip of the uh, you know dollars created versus Bitcoin created. Slow slow nudges, just keep dropping dropping the hints. I like that. Now I've yeah. definitely kind of taken that same perspective. Is that it doesn't make 
sense going out and trying to push it into everybody's perspective or like, you know, be interested in this. Like I find the tactic of uh, just waiting, like the just kind of positioning myself is that like, you know, I'm in, into Bitcoin, you know, I do this sort of thing. If you have questions or you're interested, come to me. You know, maybe I'll say or drop a little thing about it every once in a while when I feel like it's very relevant to everything being going on in the news. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, I th- was it one of, one of your pieces maybe even that was talking about like, uh, you'll find Bitcoin when the time is right <laughs> kind of thing. Um, when, when you're ready to find Bitcoin is just kind of leave it up to them to, you know, it, yeah. eventually it's a, just like in Bitcoin is common sense, you know, it's, it's time will create more converts than reason. Yeah. I think that, that, that when I went back and read Thomas Mann's common sense, that just struck such a chord with me that it's one, you can overthink problems and, and, and it can get you into a trap that you're failing to see the forest through the trees, but then also you know, recognizing that there's just things that have to happen in the world to make something click for you or to create a perspective that wouldn't otherwise exist. And that, you know, so many people are interested in Bitcoin and I constantly get calls of people asking, you know, hey, like what are resources or how, you know, where should I learn? So it's it's really, you have to have that intellectual curiosity to to ever have a hope of of understanding it and trying to convince someone that's dug in is, is not worth your time or there. So, um, but then I also have this idea that, um, so working in, in my past life, there's this idea of getting stopped out of a trade. That's essentially, you know, you, you buy a stock and you create a, a stop loss that, you know, if the price hits that point, you just automatically blow out of the position. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and, and I think in Bitcoin, I always I tell my friends that are resistant to it that like hey you know what you know what price are you going to get stopped in the bitcoin you know is it 20,000 is it 25,000 at what point can does the price dictate to you that you can no longer ignore it and I think that's another reality while you know I'm joking on the one hand it's it's a reality that you know, if you've been, if someone's been staring at Bitcoin and say that it's tulips, it's tulips, it's tulips, and they see right, you know, rises and then falls, and that those falls are reinforcement that they were right, but then it then, you know, goes back through all time highs and consistently fails to die. That at some point, even for the people that are most hardened in their in their views or their worldviews that say that Bitcoin's wrong or doesn't make sense, at some point, price dictates terms to them. Yeah. That they say, okay, you know, I now have to be at least humble enough to to say that the market. I, I may not understand this, but the market is clearly sending me a signal yeah. that there's something here that I'm misunderstanding. Yeah, um, and it's it's really funny that that was that's almost exactly the perspective that uh, Paul Tudor Jones just like released um, in the his memo or whatever um, about how. Uh, uh, who's the you know the hedge fund manager there, um, and uh, talking about how he's investing in Bitcoin and it's not because you know he understands it or whatever. It's just that you know to some degree I can't just assume like a lot of our assessment of why is in hindsight, and I just kind of can't ignore the fact that the market is pricing this thing and it is growing in the millennial 
you know, demographics and these sort of things, uh, and that it clearly has a um, some determining of value that it could very potentially be a major horse in this race. And it's uh, he's, he he basically admits like I don't understand it, and I don't know how long it's going to take for me to understand it. But there's clearly something here, and at some point, I can't just I just can't ignore it anymore. Um, and I think you're right. Like that, that's just where it's, that's where, how it's going to get to at some point that a lot of people just can't ignore it anymore. Um, yeah, I, th I think that's absolutely right. And I think I, I saw some, I didn't read the, the whole, or I think I maybe saw a copy of the letter, but I, I just read what was in a few of the articles, but he clearly talks about certain ideas where he he may not understand the technical level of how there's actually only 21 million Bitcoin, but you know a number of the monetary principles that make it not only ownable but you know drive why people would own it in the first place. And um, you know I think I think it's and there's enough I think there's plenty of cover what you know in the space today. But you know one of the articles that I wrote was Bitcoin's not for criminals and. I think it, you know increasingly as these large hedge fund managers or wealth managers begin to get involved in Bitcoin, it's kind of the idea. It's like, Bitcoin's only for criminals and Paul Tudor Jones, but no one else. I swear. <laughs> uh, um, uh, there's there's one thing that um, uh, like you talked about, like particularly in your more recent pieces, um, is like Bitcoin is a rally cry and Bitcoin is common sense. Um, you uh, really kind of come from the standpoint that, uh, or, or at least the perspective that seems to inform these are that, you know, this is a declaration of independence here and that there is a, there's a fight for something that is less about, you know, what is efficient or, you know, what is going to make us more prosperous, but what is just and what is, what is simply moral, a moral imperative that we move to something like this. Um, so in that context, how do you see this playing out or maybe how do you hope to see this playing out? And to, to what degree of a fight do you think this will be if, if the argument is that our current system is immoral, but that it, it is holding the reins to society right now, essentially? Well, one way that I would frame that is there's some inevitability to it. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that, you know, there's, there's a lot of, you know, deviation potentially between now and inevitability, mm -hmm. but that, um, so I like to think, you know, in, in one, on one, on one side, I think it's important to recognize that Bitcoin doesn't exist in a vacuum. But on, on the other side, I think that it's important to recognize that whether Bitcoin existed or not, there are fundamental flaws on a standalone basis in the legacy system that would cause that to you know, not just have the, the gradual deterioration and, and the you know, kind of gradual negative implications for kind of existing society or existing economies, but that when Bitcoin is introduced into that equation, it, it gives us a backup plan or backup switch to that, that inevitable day when the legacy monetary system fails. It's failed you know, in certain ge geographies um, already, but that I think people 
it is difficult for people to accept, but that I think that people who go down the Bitcoin rabbit hole, what they recognize, and maybe you know, obviously to varying different extents, is that fiat currencies are all at the root level one and the same. Yeah. Okay. Managed differently, but the, the the foundation that underpins them is is the same. And the cost to produce a, a dollar or a bolivar or yuan, euro, yen, ruble is all the same. It's all all the you know the same underpinning. And that you know when when you recognize that, then the idea that all fiat money will eventually hyperinflate is sounds like a less crazy idea and that if you if you recognize that and you see bitcoin as as a solution that you know for many people the, the word cause is i think a loaded term but i think that you know there is an inherent level of really understanding bitcoin and really understanding and that doesn't mean like every last technical level of it, but recognizing what the power of having a form of currency that can't be manipulated actually is and what the consequences will be in a positive way for freedom and for uh, thinking about each individual and their, their ability to live a more prosperous life. That you know, when, when the backdrop of that possibility and increasingly probability and what in my view an inevitability is that you know, with the backdrop of the legacy monetary system, it is you know, trying to you know, get to a position where that that backup switch is as robust as possible, and that people, because I think people very naturally, when they when their eyes open to it, they they want to communicate it to, to friends and families. Like it makes so much more sense to them. They can, you know, don't necessarily have the ability to prescribe what that future actually looks like and it's certainly not a utopia but it but it also is certainly categorically better than the the current system and the flaws of the current system and the you know not only the, the future implications but but looking into the past and, and, and assessing kind of what are the areas where the the nature of the money and how money has deteriorated how it's negatively impacted people's lives that so many a thing thing I think so many things that are foundational to the, the current structure of our economy are screwed up because of it. That, you know, again, not everybody, but but that there is that sense to say, you know, we're we're you know, we're taking back our, our monetary freedom, which will naturally take back so many other freedoms if more and more people adopt this. And again, it doesn't take people, you know, dying on the sword or or going out and, and fighting the government. I d I don't think that um I think that certain countries obviously have already tried to ban Bitcoin. And I do think that there's going to be, you know, in general terms, a fight to resist it. Like there's going there, just as there is today on an intellectual level, there's a resistance to Bitcoin. I think there is going to be a resistance at more of a state level to Bitcoin. But I do think that, I don't think that devolves into a, you know, kind of revolution in the sense of the American revolution or a civil war or anything like that, because ultimately, <laughs> People need money, and for the same reason that you and I recognize the value of what Bitcoin can do, people that you know are categorically opposed to it, they're going to need to get food on their table too, and they're going to need to rely yeah. on Bitcoin. And that that you know that natural force will drive them 
not just to be sympathetic to Bitcoin, but to understand what it is and why they need it and why trying to ban it is a, not only a dumb idea, but not going to work. Um, so I think that more, more naturally, the, there will be attempts by governments more to control it. They'll be just as bad at doing that as they would be at banning it. But that that's more where the developed, you know, kind of the developed world and the, you know, the governments in the developed world will, will probably steal it more on the side of trying to destroy the privacy in Bitcoin uh, or trying to co-opt it rather than, you know, if they're looking at it and saying, well, you know, there's a lot of people and there's certain congressmen that have already said, hey, you know, we need to ban Bitcoin. This is a threat to our national security. But I think that, you know, the, the people that play 4D chess will, will look at it and figure out that they can't ban it. And rather than do that, their first and you know, their second instinct will be, okay, how do I control it? They won't ultimately be able to do that. But, but increasingly, more and more people will just have Bitcoin. They'll understand the benefits. And, um, you know, one way or the other, Bitcoin's inevitable. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, one thing that I kind of find, um, more than anything is in misunderstanding Bitcoin. And maybe this is just kind of general, like ignorance about monetary history and like what actual money is. Just like you said, that was some, that was one of the rabbit holes that you went down that, you know, wasn't really, it's not explicitly studied in economics. A lot of the times it's like, what is money versus, you know, um, what is a market, I guess you could say, but is just the time scale of Bitcoin, of what Bitcoin is in, in the broader history as like, where its innovation actually lies. Like most people, like when there's a huge shift in society, it's so hard to see it when you're in the middle of it. You know, it's one of those things that you only see in hindsight. And if we're talking about like 30 year, 50 year shifts, something that happens on the tune of centuries, like as far as, and you know, it's like trying to explain to a mosquito who has a three day lifespan in the middle of spring, what all the seasons are, you know, like it's just, it's, it's so far out of their scope um, that they would never understand or like even seemingly care to understand. Um, but what do you think that time scale of Bitcoin is like when you, when you picture or like you're pulling these arguments together for Bitcoin, is this something that, you know, uh, like is on the scale of like, okay, there was a huge change in the monetary system in 1971 and now Bitcoin is another big change or is this, you know, the printing press, is this discovery of gold level? Like what, where is your frame of reference for the scope of Bitcoin in the in in history, I guess you could say. I don't know how you would really it's difficult to put anything above it. Really. <laughs> yeah. You know, because and it goes back to that idea that Hayek talks about in the use of knowledge in society around the pricing mechanism where he says that the that if the pricing mechanism were of deliberate human design it would be thought of as one of the greatest inventions ever but it but it wasn't it just naturally evolved mm -hmm. and that when we think about what money is fundamentally and how it allows all of us to 
coordinate all other economic resources and the implications for that in terms of derivatively producing other things that quote make our lives better whatever that means for any individual obviously it doesn't mean you know there is no one description of, of, of what that is that it's money that that allows for those things to be produced and it allows for you know at a high level the division of labor but when you think about division of labor it is you know more complex inputs to you know any good or service that, that that you're delivering so it's not just the complexity that exists in an iphone but I, I do use that as an example quite a bit to think about you know in many ways as satoshi nakamoto isn't the only founder of bitcoin you know, steve jobs wasn't the creator of the iphone that there were thousands you know of people at apple or at other companies that all contributed inputs to creating that ultimate and good that wouldn't be possible if not for the coordination function of money. Yeah, uh, and and it's not even something that is you know highly sophisticated for that to, to be the case. It could be something like a surfboard. You know, improve. You know, go look at a surfboard from forty or fifty years ago, and then look at you know kind of the, the greater degrees of complexity and design that exists in one today, and all of the the tools that people use to, to not actually manufacture it but design that all of that is coordinated by the money function and that it really is you know, money that you know, one way that I think about it, it that allows people to you know, inhabit you know, their surroundings in a peaceful way where they're not worried about how they're getting food on their table or water or you know, shelter over their head, that it's money that actually allows for the coordination of being able to form those resources that you know that that don't leave us scrambling or you know fighting other people to to get and and because of that because of because of what the money function is and because of you know the the deterioration in money and in the, the current world order that that's really the root level of why i would say it's it's difficult to put you know at least into you know if if you could zero down to a singular invention it's difficult to that you can put anything ahead of Bitcoin. And I actually happen to think that, you know, if, if gold's monetization path was over, you know, hundreds or thousands of years, that the Bitcoins could be far quicker than that. You know, that, that, we're, mm -hmm. that we're not going to be, you know, looking in a world where the, that, you know, we won't really see the potential of what Bitcoin can do until 2140 or something. I think mm -hmm. it could be in the next 10 years. Um, you know, I don't think that there's a seamless transition between the world of excess and the you know, disruption that our current monetary system has caused. We, we, we don't just morph over from, from one world to the other and not have to experience some pain in between. But I do think that that transition to, to get up to the other side of that um, is not necessarily a 20, 30, 40, 50 year thing. I think it's the next year thing. And, and part of that is a function of how rapid. Um, how rapidly Bitcoin development, even though Bitcoin protocol development is very slow, how rapid all of the development is on top of it, how exponential the distribution of knowledge is, and then also the what is happening in the world around us. I think that, and Paul Tudor Jones specifically did mention this, that the 2.5 trillion in two months that the Fed created, that woke a lot of people up. Yeah. And it's not necessarily getting everybody to Bitcoin, 
but it's opening eyes to, you know, to, to everybody. And many of those people are then looking and, and, and seeing Bitcoin and understanding that maybe it is just that simple. 21 million and everything else gets figured out. Yeah. Curious. Have you ever read the sovereign individual? Um, you have a lot so, of, yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say, I've, I, tr I tried to read the sovereign individual. I, I like the premise. There were just so many predictions that, you know, of, you know, this will happen and that'll happen. And uh, I, I like the idea. I didn't finish it. So sadly, but, but I, I want you to explain kind of like the, the ideas that, that, that you were about to go into. Okay. Um, so what's funny is that you, a lot of uh, what I read in your work, I feel like hits the ultimate thesis of the sovereign individual but ends up tackling it from a completely different like origin like you, you start from a completely different location but you're applying so many of the same principles that you kind of end up in the same conclusion and it's just more focused on bitcoin whereas obviously bitcoin didn't exist when they were writing it uh it's basically like the first quarter or maybe even less really that they do all of the predictions and stuff um even though that's this kind of part of the thesis through that throughout the entire book but all this stuff about like y2k and china and all of that stuff uh really is something that like i'll admit i kind of had the same like oh the first time the first time i was listening to it is i wondered if i was going to really go down the whole book but i, I gotta say i'm super happy that i finished it and now that the audiobook is out, I would definitely encourage you to go down there. You, you'll probably find a lot of really great uh, digital gold nuggets <laughs> in there to uh, pick out. So if you've got time for an audiobook, that's that's definitely one to grab. Yeah, I, I will. I will pick it back up. It's sitting, it's sitting right over uh, on my on my coffee table. So <laughs> nice. yeah, and a, a lot of my we talked about this at the beginning, but you know when i when ideas when the idea started to click for me i didn't you know go through 10 different austrian economics books or every single author in the austrian school but uh you know for me reading through uh, hayek particularly and um, who we mentioned earlier you know, not just the use of knowledge of society and the pretense of knowledge but uh, the you know the road to serfdom just Oh yeah. Really, you know, because it, it's not just guided a lot of my thought in terms of um, the 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 principles that they describe. It's how they think about arguments and and fundamental assumptions, and really trying to go down to that root level source of explaining why something is rather than starting at the top level and just kind of you know describing the the movements from there it's it's a what what actually underpins this what is what is the fundamental piece and so um you know i think a lot of my ultimate views are kind of come from that same philosophy but it, but it is it's more foundational that and how to think about problems in the first place yeah yeah that's that's a really good point is that it changes kind of the methodology about how to how to address something that just is you, you know like 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 what is the frame of reference by which i judge this if i'm am i taking it at its word or am i attacking its presumptions and finding out where the origins of this thought process come from yeah, that that's that's very very true it, it's very like 
get at the first order, uh, like find the source of how it is that we even came to this like conclusion, um, uh, rather than take the conclusion and see if we can apply it backwards in a sense. Right. Um, uh, uh, did you, do you consider yourself like, like I know this had a huge effect on my political persuasion. Um, I mean, you know, road to serfdom, like it's hard to not get that out of your head. Um, but do you consider yourself part of any particular mold? Like, like you, do you have, do you ascribe to, uh, one political persuasion or is it just kind of something that you've pushed off and dismissed or like, like what kind of what's your take on that? So for, for me, I think it, it's, it's definitely impacted my, I think, or maybe it's helped put words to things that already felt each, either natural or intuitive, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of explaining, you know, explaining why certain civil liber- liber- liberties are important. Um, but I definitely, you know, certainly skew freedom oriented libertarian oriented but um, you know really thinking more along the lines of free markets and the the individual and preserve you know it's kind of the idea that one of the things that within the political sphere that annoys me the most because i definitely don't you know definitely wouldn't consider myself you know like a democrat or republican because i look at all of them and say that they are producing, you know, they're all collectively run amok with three, <laughs> with three trillion dollar deficits. Um, Cause you know, in, in that way, they're all the same. You know, that, that, that idea as it is the most, is the most important political issue that is facing us and they all look alike in that sense. Yeah. Um, but, mm-hmm. but then the, but the, the other thing is, and I think part of this comes from, Thinking about the world and from a you know, quote sovereign individual basis, but that um, people always throw out the idea of quote national security, and it always just pisses me off. That <laughs> you know they're always thinking about because because it is it harkens back to that idea of thinking about the world in aggregates, and if you you know you can't have quote national security if you don't have individual security, and that whole idea seems to be lost. That, that it's all, it, 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 everyone within the political sphere of our country, and I hate to use the term everyone, because certainly it's not everyone, but the, the majority at least, think in terms of the whole and what's best for the quote whole, but then on an individual level, they all still think about what's individually best for me, or then as an extension of that, what's best for me and my family, and what's best for me and my and surrounding community, but then when it goes back up to the you know, political sphere, it's thinking in aggregates or thinking in the whole, but that's not the way that the world actually works. And so, so many things on the individual level are comp- compromised in the quote for the benefit of the aggregate, but everyone fails to recognize that if the individual freedoms are protected, there is no security of the aggregate. Yeah, and the aggregate ends up falling apart as a consequence of the fact that none of its individual pieces actually ever got any you've compromised the individual so it eventually it, it reflects in your aggregate you know um, yeah uh, i don't want to take up too much of your time uh but uh so we'll just kind of close this out with two other questions was uh, i saw that you had multiple slots at the value of bitcoin conference 
Uh, what all are you tackling over there? What are your um, uh, talks about? So I'm going to give two talks, one on a, really a similar idea to what I recently just wrote about in Bitcoin's Common Sense, mm -hmm. you know, highlighting Fed monetary policy, not just you know, what's happened in the last two months, but bringing in some of that historical context of what I've written about in Ender's Game of all of these, all of these episodes, whether it's the great financial crisis, what's happening now, the you know, they're looked at episodically and they're not connected to the the root level cause and and tying it back to what's happened in the monetary system and how the monetary system has fueled this massive credit system that I don't want to say necessitates, but ultimately you know is the is the explanation for why the Fed you know in the last two months created 2.5 trillion. In the financial crisis, there was the, um, the, the scapegoat that was subprime and strippers and, and you know, strippers getting five homes, right, as, as lionized in, in the big short, and that the real underlying issue was an over-leveraged and insolvent banking system. Um, and then similarly today, you know, we have the, the coronavirus or COVID-19 and the global economic shutdown, and Everyone's saying, okay, yes, you know, yeah, the Fed needs to do whatever it takes, create 2.5 trillion more dollars, but that so much of the calamity is actually caused again because we have such a massively overlevered financial system and not enough people actually have the ability to manage their lives for two, three, four, five, six months if some negative or unexpected thing happened. And that, you know, is being completely uh, masked over that. You know, it, that the problem is the global shutdown, but no, no, really the problem is the highly levered financial system, and that yeah. all of it spans from you know going back before the crisis to the to the monetary debasement and and the instability that that caused as being the core issue. And that each one of these episodes are actually the same, and they have to build on top of each other. So um, that that's one talk talking about that, but really also connecting it to the pricing mechanism and and that idea of well, what's actually happening when the Fed creates $2.5 trillion, not just in terms of mechanically what happens, but what are the consequences for the structure of the economy and how does that influence it? And tying that back to the idea of common sense about these kind of two, two key ideas being that you have one form of money that's constantly debased, another form of money that has a fixed supply and why that fixed supply currency will ultimately have a more reliable pricing mechanism. And then the other, the other talk is uh, on and this is something that I want to write about. I haven't got around to it, but the idea I talked about it some, but I haven't really brought out the idea in full, but explaining all the different ways in which Bitcoin is anti-fragile of why nice. it, it actually um, gains strength from volatility and the chaos and how at, at kind of every level within the network, you know, whenever, whenever the Bitcoin network is attacked and whether it's attacked, purposefully or you know regardless of the attack vector that it doesn't just uh, it's not just static it doesn't just fend off attacks that, that as that in the process or by the mechanism through which it routes around it uh, or immunizes the threats it actually becomes more uh, resilient more resilient and stronger as a result so it doesn't just take blows it basically take blows and then uh, responds to those and morphs such that 
you know, it's now now stronger as, as a result of the very attack vectors that, that tried to. Nice. Is that is that what's coming next in the gradually then suddenly series? I I think so. You think so? I think so. Yeah. Awesome. Well, if you uh, want any feedback or anything, uh, feel free to shoot it my way. Otherwise, when it gets done, definitely drop it drop it in a DM or something, and I'll have you an audio version in no time. Awesome. Yeah. No, I really I really appreciate it. We'll have to get on. You know, I was thinking about just sending them over to you before, so you could you could have them pre-recorded, give oh, give you yeah, a, a advanced look. Uh, and, and and we need to start doing that. This last time, I was working until about four in the morning to get that one done. So just wanted to get it out. But yeah, dude, we'll, yeah, we'll absolutely, hit me up. Hey, Amen. Uh, thanks. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, I'm I'm really excited. I truly uh, love this series, and I'm very happy to be able to help. Uh, however I can and hopefully I'm bringing it to more people um, because that, yeah. that's that's what I've done more often now is uh, like kind of the same reason you're talking about you wrote the articles that's why I do the audio version is I want to just be able to point to somebody like be like you know but isn't it slow and it's like no re- listen to this shit from Parker Lewis man he he, he tears apart <laughs> yeah I, I honestly think that when people are reading my articles they're probably reading them in their head in your voice so <laughs> I think that's a good thing but but it's also why distribution of knowledge is exponential so yeah, yeah. finding different mediums that work for different people and and no uh, but but yeah i really do appreciate personally the uh, the work that you do generally but then also specifically to bring the the gradual gradually then suddenly not just the audio but to life love it all right i will let you get back to work on all, all your right. stuff and uh all i'll right. catch you later man appreciate it guy yeah man take it easy see you. all right one last love for swanbitcoin.com. Make sure you add that slash guy at the end uh, if you uh, have yet to start your Bitcoin savings plan. But I'm out today. I hope everybody is having a wonderful, wonderful having uh, and did their, their thing to celebrate. And I will uh, catch you next time. Uh, we'll be back here tomorrow with another episode. Don't miss it. I got some fun things to announce. Might just be tomorrow. You never know. This is Guy Swan. I'm out. Till then, take it easy, guys.